Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. As you see, I just entitled this Rabbis, Presidents, and, uh, and, and Immigration. And so uh, we're gonna, the, the whole business revolves around, and as I see it, the question of immigration or non-immigration to the United States of America, which is as new as Donald Trump. That's how he got elected. That is how he got elected. So um, let's take a look at this from the, as, as I would suggest, from the earliest times. And I think everybody knows that the uh, United States of America wasn't founded by the Indians, but followed by uh, the white man, by Europeans who were immigrants to this country, going back to, uh, you know, the pilgrims and all that sort of thing. And more specifically, when you had the first uh, census back in 1790, that's how big the U.S. was once upon a time. Uh, the 13 colonies, or 13 states already, and, they, and uh, Washington had just been elected president as 4 million people in the United States in those areas, including black and white, and those including the slaves, which is very sparse, okay? If you take a look, that's pretty much up to the Mississippi, more or less. And uh, 4 million in that whole area is, is very little. So you could say, great, there's a lot of room for everybody. And that's what Canada and Australia and other countries, that's their attitude, has been. But in the USA, it happened to be that their attitude was we're too small and too sparsely populated. And if we want to build up the country, then we need to bring in a lot of immigrants. And so they encouraged, that was a big uh, encouragement. Uh, but for the first 40 years or so of the United States of America, there's very low immigration to the country. This is uh, already the time of Andrew Jackson, 1830. It's a little bit bigger, but not much. And uh, in those decades, because you had the European War, Napoleon, and all that, without going into details, there wasn't a lot of immigration. Such as immigration as there was, was coming from mainly England, uh, Holland, a little bit from Germany, remember I said a little bit, and from France, Western Europe. That's mainly what you had over there. That's why you run across Americans, especially Watts, with Frenchy names or things like that, or Dutchy names like Roosevelt, okay? They go back a long way, but there was a kind of immigration, and it's not very different than the English who were already here. Uh, now, there were, uh, then things started to change. You had that century, or almost a century, 90 years, 95 years, when things changed, and a tidal wave of immigration hit this country. Encouraged by the government, a tidal wave of immigration from 1830, 1930, or to be exact, 1924. Uh, that's a different story. Now, the first half is from 1830, 1870, another for 40 years. You had a ton of people coming in from Western Europe, as I said before. People started coming, a lot of numbers from England. When I say England, that's your English, your Scottish, your Irish. Remember that. You got a lot of your Dutch, a lot of French, believe it or not, and German. Such I'm pointing over there. there was no country called Germany at that time. Instead, you had a whole bunch of different little countries. And without going through all the details, Germany had a lot of little petty dictatorships. A lot of people didn't like it. And once upon a time, if you didn't like the way things were going in Germany, you have a very easy possibility. Just take a boat and go to another country, and nobody will bother you. Nobody will bother you. And that is what a lot of Germans did. Okay? Don't blame them. Uh, and so the result is you had um, a significant immigration 
uh, from Western Europe. I would also throw in the uh, Sweden, the Norwegians, the Scandinavians, as you know, went to uh, Minnesota and all those kind of places. And uh, therefore, everybody's coming from Western Europe, mainly Protestant, you know, similar to the English. There are only two uh, large problematic groups. Nobody had any problem with uh, the, you know, the English or the Scottish coming in, or the Dutch for that matter, or any of that. It's the Germans and the Irish, okay? That's a, five million Germans came here. That's a lot, okay? And also about five million Irishmen. Now, the Germans, the problem was they all stick together and they talk a funny language, okay? And that's what bothered people. But it didn't bother them that much because the Germans work very hard. They're very clean and neat, <laughs> you understand? And so they had their own societies and their beer holes and all kinds of stuff, but they didn't bother anybody, so to speak. And so people got used to them. The Irish was a big problem, okay? The Irish, they said like this, is Catholic. Therefore, they don't understand what democracy is. They bring in the Pope. They bring in the heresy trials and all this kind of stuff. This is what people say. And they're all drunk, as we all know. And they'll wreck the country. They're going to make a crime. It'll create a slum. This is what everybody said at that time, okay? Now, what do I mean when I say everybody said at that time? That's the know-nothing party. They had something called the Know Nothing Party was against the Irish. They said, basically, it's, it's like Trump in the sense, like, it's cut the immigration, let everybody in except the Irish, because, again, it's the wrong element. I, they're white, they speak English, they, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, uh, they look like everybody else and all the rest. Yeah, but they're different in their religion and their clannish and their culture, and they really were looked at as barbarians. Okay, that's what, it, that, 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 that's what people thought. There was a whole political party that was formed in this country called the American Party or the Know Nothing Party, and as I said before, this is based on a racialism. And the racialism was a science once upon a time. And the science says like this, democracy is a remarkable thing. Only the U.S. has pulled it off right. Uh, the reason you, and England, the only reason is because Ameri the, the Anglo-Saxons have evolved in a certain way over the centuries. And they have certain character traits that we made our mistakes in earlier centuries. You know, Henry VIII and all that business and the, the Civil War. But little by little, they learned how to do it right. And another race can't do it right. You get it? You give it to the wrong people, they'll run the thing into the ground. So we don't want to mess up a good thing that we have over here. So democracy is not simply a political theory. It also requires a certain ethnicity, a certain culture to make it work. You know and that was a the theory. Um, and uh, as I said before, they were really afraid the Irish wouldn't be able to handle that. Now, in spite of everything I just said, uh, the Irish came in. In other words, there were no laws actually passed. The Know Nothing Party was not successful in any elections except in one state. And that, of course, was the state of Maryland. <laughs> okay? uh, that's true. Yeah, the governor and the mayor and all this kind of stuff. Over here, okay. Uh, and the great champion of the Irish men, by the way, was called the Democratic Party, which is why, they, the, which is why the Irish always voted Democratic. Now, um, then came the Civil War. And in the Civil War, if you know anything at all, the North beat the South because they outnumbered them. One of the reasons they outnumbered them was they had bigger armies. Why they had bigger armies? It's not true they didn't draft anybody for most of the war. The answer is Abraham Lincoln was, get, was able to put together a ton of Irishmen, Negroes, as they called them at that time, and Germans. You don't know this, but you look it up. A ton and a half. The Southerners said, where did all this come from? You get it? And then people changed their mind. They said, well, I guess this is a good uh, element in the country. So by 1880... By 1880, there were millions of immigrants in this country. They had, of course, moved all west. These are the people who populated the Midwest. Your Germans, your Scandinavians, the Irish, and the others. Where did the Missouri come from? Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan. It's not people who moved here from Baltimore, New York, 
is huge numbers of immigrants that came there and populated what we call the Midwest. And it was no problem because everybody said like this, these kinds of people, like is your Dutch, Norwegian, this, that, you know, they're a little, everybody's a little bit different, but they fit in in the, in the general matrix. In the midst of all that, huge wave of millions of Irish, millions of Germans, millions of other stuff was a quarter million Jews. That's the German Jews. But since it's a small number, over 50 years, from 1830 to 1880, uh, trickling in, you kind of like didn't notice them so much. There was a certain, there was a certain amount of resentment, but nothing uh, serious. And the truth is, they're German Jews, so they're not that funny looking. You get it? They're like the other Germans, and they're Western. Because the Jews that came over here mainly came from Central Europe, from Germany, from Bohemia, and places like that. And also, the German Jews were extremely Americanist. When they got off the boat, they had one idea in mind, which is to become an American as soon as possible. This is why Reform Judaism took off in America, because they really wanted to be as American as the, uh, uh, as the neighbor, as, as Protestant as possible. Uh, from a firm perspective, you might not like that. But what they had in mind, switch the sitter, make the uh, services more like a church, bring in the organ, all that sort of business, exchange uh, pulpits uh, with, a, with, a, with a, a minister, all that kind of stuff was to show we want to Americanize, Americanize, Americanize it from the point of view of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Okay, you know, okay. So, uh, in fact, they were even politically conservative. The, uh, that's why, you know, Isaac Mary Wise is the leader, the founder of Reform Judaism in America. I mean, his whole point was, let's make it American. He even want to call what he called Minhag America. You get it? Fine. But Nebuch, these German Jews were still Jewish. They could not help but feel the tsarists of their Eastern European brothers. And these German Jews would demonstrate Jewish solidarity by lobbying for the United States government to allow Eastern European Jewry to immigrate to this country. This is a story people don't know. But the significant German Jews, this guy was a, has a, a Sephardic name, but is mostly German, and Simon Wolf I spoke about in the past. These are all Jews who came to this country from Germany, or their parents or grandparents did. And uh, they got in with the presidency of the United States at that time, and they lobbied the federal government and the Congress uh, on a one-by-one -one basis. This is the B'nai B'rith of yesteryear, of yesteryear. Uh, in which they said, don't pass laws to, to uh, stop the immigration. So they really enabled your parents and grandparents, speaking generically, to get into this uh, country. See, this is what the American anti-Semites complained about, the wasps. They said, listen, we let the German Jews in, and we got no problem with them. But then they go and lobby and pressure us to let in the Eastern European Jews, with whom we do have a problem. So the German Jews are taking unfair advantage of our political system. You hear that? You know, you hear that? Starting in the 1880s, immigration starts from Eastern Europe. And we're talking about millions. So look, look, look at these numbers from 1880 to 1924, late 1800s. This is probably when many of your relatives came in. You have 4 million Italians, 5 million Poles, a million Hungarians, meaning non-Jewish, of course, Greek and Lithuanian million, 2.8 Eastern European, 2.8 million Jews. Okay? Russia, Poland, Galicia, Hungary, and that sort of thing. Okay? That's a lot, although I want to point out it's not as big as the Italians, it's not as big as the Poles, right? So you really had a huge number of, and I want you to think about this, Ellis Island and places like that, Baltimore, Maryland, Galveston, every day, ships were coming in every day with disgorging, <laughs> you know, new people coming from Europe all the time, and then they're supposed to go somewhere. You follow? I mean, it's a, it's a giant uh, uh, amount of immigration. Um, 
the wasps in this country uh, naturally got nervous. They said, is this going to change America? Look, we're bringing it. All these Polacks, Hungarians, and Jews, and Greeks, this and that and the other. It's going to be terrible. Uh, it's going to change the country and make it not to America anymore. And they come from backwards cultures. So in other words, they're used once again to non-democratic societies. They used, they'll be bad voters because it's easy to bribe them. They don't have our well-developed Anglo-Saxon democratic sensibilities. You understand? They, they don't have good civic virtues. This was the argument. And they were pains to point out, which is true, there is no right to immigrate. Is that clear? There's no right in America. It's not in the Constitution. You can immigrate. It's been a part of American culture to accept and encourage immigration, but immigration of the right sort. Maybe now that should be changed, they said, because we're full, <laughs> okay? It's, a, it's, it's enough. Look, we are at 60 million people. In, 18, in 1790, it was 4 million. They said, Gnug is Gnug, okay? We filled up the country. We don't need any more of this business. And so already in the 1890s, the WASPs, led by Henry Cabot Lodge, famous senator from uh, Massachusetts, passed a law restricting immigration for the first time. Okay? And uh, uh, it got went through Congress. But the president at that time was the other kind of WASP, what you call today a WASP liberal, Grover Cleveland, who was, by the way, a Democrat. <laughs> they was elected by the Irish votes. And Grover Cleveland was a very uh, interesting person. And look what he does over here. He vetoed the law the day before he left office. Okay? Say, I cannot believe that we would be protected against these alleged evils of unrestricted immigration by limiting immigration to those who can read and write in any language 25 words because they tried to put in these uh, literacy tests and all kind of tricks to keep out Polish people and, uh, you know, Lithuanian and all the kind of business because they couldn't read English. And here was what President Cleveland said, a radical departure from our national policy regarding immigration is here, herefore presented. Until now, we welcomed all those who came to us from other lands, except for those whose moral and physical conditions or history threaten danger. You know, you don't want to live in a criminal or someone who's typhoid Mary. I get that. We have encouraged those coming from foreign countries to cast their lots with us and join in the development of our vast domains, securing in return a share in the blessings of American citizenship, which means that we've always taken a very generous, open kind of attitude towards uh, citizenship. And therefore, he says, I'm vetoing this bill, which would go in the opposite direction. Right? So, uh, uh, good old Grover Cleveland, as they say. Now, in addition, uh, helping the immigration with big business, capitalism, because big business, of course, went cheap labor. Okay, you didn't have no big labor unions in these years, because you can always fire them and get new guys coming off the boat. Uh, today, you have this situation unofficially with the Mexican and other workers. Nobody will admit it. It's the same idea. You're looking for cheap labor. So, uh, put it this way: it's big business plus Grover Cleveland, WASP liberals versus the WASP restrictionists, says two to one, the former were more powerful than the latter, so it didn't happen. But I want you to understand that already from the 1880s, 1890s, there already was developing in this country a movement among the settled members, the uh, WASPs, as I say, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, that Gnug is Gnug. We have too many, and uh, the only thing is, and you see, they got it passed in Congress. So there was a big movement on it. The president stood in the way. Okay? The president stood in the way. After Grover Cleveland was William McKinley, he was a big businessman, Republican. That's how he got in. And so you have nothing to worry about because big business wants uh, cheap labor. They want all the Italians to get off the all the Polish, all the thing, all the Jews. They, they, they don't care about that. Okay? That, I'll tell you right now. And not only that, William McKinley, 
who was a right-wing big business Republican, appointed uh, a Jew as uh, the uh, United States minister to uh, the Turkish Empire, uh, Oscar Strauss, um, who was uh, one of the owners of Macy's. And uh, uh, let me put it this way. That's his way of saying the Jews can fit in fine. You understand? We have room, Jews can fit in fine. Grover Cleveland appointed somebody to be the ambassador to Vienna to Franz Josef. And the guy was not Jewish, but his wife was Jewish. And they turned it down because they didn't want someone with a Jewish wife. You don't realize what the prejudice was at that time. And Grover Cleveland did not appoint an ambassador to Vienna. He said, well, then if you won't accept it, I'm not saying anybody. So this was the ins and outs at that time. Now, I cannot forbear but share with you that Oscar Strauss repaid this confidence in spades because a year later came the Spanish-American War. And part of the Spanish-American War was the Philippine invasion. I'm talking about the United States invaded and suppressed ruthlessly and murderously the Philippine Islands. They get over it. It happened. And the result is that you had a big insurrection. From the American point of view, they call it insurrection. The Philippines called it a war of independence. And it was really brutal. And the worst was we called the Moros, the Muslims, who are still a problem today. So we're talking about 1899, okay? And they're running around killing the American soldiers. And this is why they invented the Colt 45, remember that? To stop them. And even that didn't do the trick. So uh, Oscar Strauss said like this, since they're Muslims, at that time, the Sultan of Turkey was the Caliph, was the head posek of the Sunni Muslims. So I'm going to ask him if he'll write a letter to the Moros saying, uh, don't rebel against America. They will not harm your religion because we're not out to get the bottom of their religion. And he sent, he wrote a letter and he sent it to Mecca and from Mecca they got it to the Philippines. Okay? And that stopped the rebellion. And look at this. William McKinley wrote him a letter and he said like this, uh, the accomplishment has saved the United States 20,000 soldiers in the field. Okay? If the reader will, this is what President McKinley wrote. If the reader will pause to consider what this means in men and millions of money, he'll appreciate this wonderful piece of diplomacy in averting a holy war. So there's a little piece of Americana. Now, uh, the next president was, uh, so in these years, you start to get a lot. In the 80s, you know, 10,000, 11,000, that kind of thing. In the 90s, like 20,000. In, in, in the beginning of the 20th century, you got gigantic numbers. And that's because Teddy Roosevelt became the president. He was a New Yorker, of course. That means he knew Jews very well. He had actually been the police commissioner there. He had a lot of Jewish friends. And uh, if you want to understand the real politics, you will see that for Jews at that time, the number one cause that mattered in this country was precisely free immigration. So what happened later on that they closed it down could have happened 20 years earlier, 25 years earlier. So now I'm telling you why he didn't. When Theodore Roosevelt was, a, first of all, he, was, he became president when the other guy was shot. But when, when he uh, uh, came into office on his own, when he won a big victory in 1904, uh, he paid the Jews off in the following way. The, the government department in those days in charge of immigration was the Department of Labor and Commerce. Today, there are two separate departments. And the Labor Department is in charge of labor, obviously, and the, Commerce, and the, and the Bureau of Immigration is somewhere else. But at that time, the Bureau of Immigration was in the Labor and Commerce Department. And he named Oscar Strauss to be Secretary of Labor and Commerce, the first Jew. You understand? But it wasn't simply that he was naming a Jew to the cabinet. You know, he wasn't making him postmaster general or something like that. He was making him the secretary of the only post that counted for Jews. You get it? And as a result, um, as a result, when you look at the first 10 years of America, it's 100,000 a year. It's crazy numbers. Jews. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, there were no restrictions 
except if somebody was a criminal or something along those lines. So this is when you had the huge immigration into this country, um, and this is for Roosevelt and Taft. That, that's what happened, because Roosevelt had, uh, as they say, uh, what do you call it, the, a Jewish Secretary of Labor and Commerce. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, this guy was a friend of Jacob Schiff. Jacob Schiff was the number one bankroller of Theodore Roosevelt. I spoke about it in the past. Uh, is a, a story I've told many times. Hopefully you've forgotten it. And uh, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt was a real politician. A real politician means they're full of baloney. And there was some big banquet in New York City in 1906 or 1907, which was attended by the press. But it was a bunch of Jews where they're also, including Jacob Schiff, who was sitting next door, sitting next to Theodore Roosevelt at the head table at the dais. And Jacob Schiff at that time was worth $80 million. Okay, at that time. So you calculate what that is today. Now, um, anyhow, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was, was saying, people ask me, why did I appoint Oscar Strauss as the first Jew, you know, to the cabinet, all the rest of it. He was bloviating, so I guess, believe me, I do not ask the race, the color, the creed of any nominee. He said, I look for the best American. And that's what matters to me, it's a merit. I do not care about the person's background. And there were so many speeches that Jacob Schiff was older, had dozed off. And so he said, I guess, isn't that right, Schiff? So he woke up and he said, what's going on? He said, I was talking about Strauss. He said, yes, sir. As soon as the president won the election, he said, get me the best Jew you know for this. <laughs> <laughs> and the reporters, of course, were all there. You know. But anyway, it's a different America at that time. Uh, and what's interesting is that he, this is a wasp, Theodore Roosevelt from the elite, right, the rich New Yorkers, uh, and uh, he was a racialist, very much so, if you know who he was, uh, you know, to different, uh, but he said the Jews are, are doable, get it? Uh, it's interesting, because he had a lot of experience with Jews in New York, and he said, you can get me a Russian and Polish Jew who comes off, and I know at the beginning it looks funny, but give it 20 years, give it 30 years, and you'll see, they, they, they want to be American, you know, I know they look funny, they talk funny, but they want to be American just like everybody else. So they're, they're okay. So that's very interesting. Now, the result is that the wasps, the uh, elites, were very resentful at the beginning of the 20th century during these 10 years, the eight years of Roosevelt, because it was a gigantic Jewish immigration. Look at the numbers over here uh, of Jewish immigrants. Uh, this is still McKinley, 37, 60,000 in one year. And then comes Roosevelt, 58, 76, 106, 106,000 Jews came through New York and such places in one year. This is under Teddy Roosevelt. 130,000? 150,000? Okay? 150,000 and 100,000. This was the payoff. You understand? That's what it means to have a Jewish Secretary of, of, of Labor and Commerce. So the public doesn't understand it because the oilum is a goylem. But if you look at the if you look at the figures, you know they speak of. So the American Jewish community in its large size comes from this time, doesn't it? Get it? Otherwise, it'd be half of what it is. It's from the years before the First World War, and particularly Roosevelt and Taft, because um, when Teddy Roosevelt uh, left office, he was succeeded by William Howard Taft, the only Unitarian, by the way. Okay. So Taft was very liberal in his, uh, if you know the Unitarians, that's like Reformed Judaism. As a matter of fact, no, no, no. William Howard Taft was from an aristocratic wasp family in Cincinnati. 
uh, his father founded the Skull and Bones. Okay, I'm just telling you. And it was an attorney general of the United States and all this kind of stuff. That's right. Wait a minute. William Howard Taft many times said like this. His church was across the street from the Reformed Temple, from Isaac Mayer Wise. And every month they switched pulpits. And he said, I still revere the memory of Isaac Mayer Wise because I know you're laughing, but the Reformed Judaism, especially classical reform, the classical Unitarian, was very similar. You get it? So he was very sympathetic to Jews, even though they fordrayed him a cup, if you know, if you know anything about it. And um, uh, here's the funny part. When Teddy Roosevelt left office, Strauss went out, and all the wasps said like this, thank God, got the Jew out of there, and he put in someone who was a Gentile, uh, Charles Nagel. The problem is they didn't know that he was married to the sister of Louis Brandeis. <laughs> okay, so the fix was in. And so take a look at this. 50,000, 85,000, 90,000, 1913, over 100,000. These are, again, gigantic numbers. So these are where you all come from, so to speak. My parents came after the war. But you all, who are Yankee Yankees, you all came from the, m mostly, you, know, you understand what I'm saying, the majority came from uh, McKinley, uh, Roosevelt, and Taft. It's uh, just interesting, three Republican administrations. Now, um, <sighs> trouble is, by this time, socialism in its various forms, especially Marxism, had started to spread all over the world and in this country. And uh, the Wasps and others started to feel an actual threat from so many immigrants who might overthrow the government. It's no longer the good old-fashioned uh, bourgeois German Jews. When the German Jews came in the 1800s, socialism didn't exist. And so people just coming over this country to start peddling till you get a store, uh, you know, a, a, a grocery store and then a dry goods store and hopefully eventually a department store. That's what the German Jews did. That's what they did. In other words, the American way. The new ones are coming over with labor rights, and unions, and uh, you know, they're supporting government socialist programs and the Progressive Party and all the rest. And this is different, you understand? Now the immigrants are looked at as a potential threat, you see, as a threat. Uh, it took a decade or so for these ideas to get traction. So think from 1910 to 1920 or thereabouts. But it did, especially after the frightful Russian Revolution in which Jews were so prominent. So if you're not Jewish and you live in this country and you look and you see Trotsky and Lenin and this, they're all Jews, you know, as, as far as they see it, and they're shooting people by the millions, which is true. They're torturing people in, in, in cells, which is true. Um, they're going to bring that over here, you see? Now, you know and I know your uncle uh, Fred wasn't going to bring a revolution over here. No, I'm wrong. Your cousin Ted, who was a communist, wanted to bring revolution over here. <laughs> Don't raise your hand if you had any relative that was a communist, okay? So it was a scary business, at least in the mind. And after the First World War, came what they called the Red Scares. They put the anarchists, put bombs in Wall Street and then the Attorney General's uh, house. And that was what we call today terror campaign. And that freaked out the country. And uh, they actually suspended the Bill of Rights on some people. And they deported anybody uh, who they suspected of being an anarchist because already in the time of Teddy Roosevelt, the Congress had passed what they called the Anarchist Exclusion Act. You see? If you came to this country, it turns out you were an anarchist, then you, we can revoke your citizenship and, and throw you back. Because William McKinley was shot to death by an anarchist in Buffalo, New York. You see? So it's already, let me put it this way. You think we're dealing with terrorism issues today, and we of course are. And now we have Islamic terrorism. But you had a different type of terrorism 100 years ago. Okay? Now, uh, Anyhow, 
when the first world during the first world war there was no immigration because the war was going on when the war was over right yeah there's uh, teddy roosevelt's cabinet and there's a there's strauss okay yeah, let's go on when the first world was over so people said i guess okay now we can pick up the immigration again look how many jews poured into this country in 1921 120,000, okay? And then 50, 60, large numbers. This is right after the war, but as soon, as soon as you had a chance, people start pouring in this country. And it's the Red Scares. And it's communist revolution all over the world. And it's this, that, and the other. You understand what I'm saying? The public went nuts, okay? And they're formed, in the, right or wrong, right? Like I said before, we can debate whether, whether Rabbi Tarragon was bringing in the Communist Party or something like that. But despite what, you know, you might think, as far as the public is concerned, the media, the writers, the intelligentsia, the politicians, and all the others, they said enough is enough, okay? I might point out that racialism by this time was a well-known science, and racialism tells you that, that the people who are not from West Europe have bad DNA. Like I said before, they don't understand what democracy is. Uh, the Jews, the Italians, the Poles, they'll cheat, they'll bribe, They'll, uh, they'll look at the corrupt city, uh, you know, uh, governments that you had at that time. Uh, what is this all about? It's the wrong, we're bringing in the wrong element. If you want to bring in your Germans, you want to bring in your English, that's okay. You want to bring in your Lithuanians, Jewish or not Jewish, your Polish, your Romanians, and who knows what beyond that, the Bulgarians, and this, or this, this, it's a bad idea. Then you're bringing in a cancer. This is how people thought about it, okay? So little by little, um, the idea for Congress to pass exclusionary acts uh, got traction, okay? And uh, as I say, there was a, a, a very small Immigration Exclusion Act in 1882 for convicts and indigent people and prostitutes and lunatics and idiots. What about the indigent people? The Jew Wait a minute. The Jews came over from Europe and Russia. They're indigent. They're broke. Simon Wolf was able to get a special ruling from the Department of Labor and Commerce at the time of Chester A. Arthur, <laughs> right? that the Jews are not going to be classified as indigents because the other Jews will take care of them. Right? That's, that became a federal ruling. You understand? So that's really interesting because otherwise you couldn't get in. You got a certificate for that, right? Uh, no. No, that's not true. No, sir. You're talking about the 1930s and all that. No. I'm talking about Jew it was sent out as a matter of policy, you know, bureaucratic policy, whatever they call it, that Jews can come in and don't worry about the money side of it. Jews? That's correct. Right? This was the thing, because he said the Jews all take care of each other and things like this. I'll tell you again, that Simon Wolf is, it was an interesting thing. Anyhow, um, all I'm saying is that uh, you get to the Immigration Act of 1903, which they uh anarchists, epileptics, those who had episodes of insanity, infectious diseases, mental illness. In 1917, wait a minute, uh, undesirables, alcoholics, at, well, <laughs> that throws a lot of people out. He says, Anarchists, contra criminals, and combat epilepsy, feeble minded idiots, illiterates, imbeciles, insane, poverty, contagious disease, defective disc, uh, psychopathic inferiority. Whoa. Political ra radicals. Political radicals. Right? Polyg po polygamists, prostitutes, and vagrants. What's happening? They're, they're, they're trying to expand it. They're trying to expand it. Okay? Contract laborers. What's that? Did I skip that? Yeah, contract laborers. Yeah, you're, you're, that's very important. You're 100% correct. By the 1920s, therefore, the, the WASP sentiment had become the consensus of the great majority of the American population. It had become, it wasn't before, but it had become the politically correct point of view among the elites 
and among the masses. So by the time you get to President Harding and President Coolidge in the 1920s, they just want a normal country and no more immigration, at least not for a while. That's all. Nothing against anybody. Just, we, you know, take a break, as they say. You know, no, we, we, we don't want to bring in anybody. And the result is that they passed the Quota Acts of 19... Uh, and by the way, Coolidge uh, what he did so even though there was a tremendous prosperity. I mean, look at this, by the way. I want you to take a look at the 1920s. People don't know. Uh, what was our expenditure? The government spent uh, $3 billion and did Well, let me get it. They took in 3.8 and they spent 3.1. So the government had a surplus in those days. Uh, then, wait a minute. Uh, Coolidge came in. It cut the... The, uh, the expenditures at 2.9, they put in 3.8, almost a billion in surplus. The whole time, the government was running big surpluses, and he wouldn't spend it. So they used it to pay off the debt. I just want you to see, the national debt in 1923 was 22 billion, then it was 16 billion. Okay? So in other words, it wasn't that they couldn't afford immigration. The prosperity was doing very well, but they didn't want it. You understand? Because the wrong kind of people and the mess things up. Big pardon? Well, that's for another time. Uh, so eventually they passed what's called the Quota Acts. Now take a look at this, in 1921 and 1924, the main one being 1924. And basically, the idea was you, you uh, restricted the number of immigrants from any country to 3% of the number of residents from that country living in the U.S. in 1910. So, you know, if there were, uh, what is it, 300,000 Jews? So how many Jews can come in every year? <coughs> 3,000, right? You know, so in other words, very small number. By the way, Jews are not a category. Is that clear? Jews are not a category. They were either citizens of their country. They're Germans, they're Polish, they're this and that and the other. So how big is the Polish quota? <laughs> okay? How big is the Lithuanian quota? How big is the Romanian quota? And it's no joke. So because it means you can't get into the country. We're very hard. And the theory, the idea was, of course, there are too many foreigners in this country as it is. And I can only tell you that when this act, the Johnson Act, was passed in 1924, it was extremely popular. And it, uh, in every section of the country, and got very, very strong support. Only the, uh, you know, Jewish groups and, uh, you know, the Italian and Polish groups didn't like it. And that just made all the regular wasps in this country like it. And so it really became, I can't emphasize for you, it really became granite, you know, hardwired into the American political system, which, of course, was the disaster at the time when Hitler came to power. Okay, it was an American way of doing anti-Semitism. Maybe I should use that word. Maybe I shouldn't. It was an American way of doing anti-Semitism. Very polite and correct. We're not bothering any Jews in America anywhere else. But on the other hand, we're not mechayev to take in large numbers and give them the same rights and influence we long-time natives have. Why are we mechayev to do that? That's a perverse liberalism to which we do not subscribe because we do not perceive it to be in our interest to subscribe to it. Are you Jews demanding? that we should go against our interests because of some abstract theory of liberalism to which you subscribe because it's in your interest, that's a false, infuriating, and unacceptable reasoning to us. So, so we don't want to bring in any more Emma Goldman, you know, uh, the, the big anarchists and all. We don't want it. So we're not going to do it. And, uh, you know, wh why should we? It's, 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 it's a nice country the way it is. People are trying to get into this country, not trying to run away, as the expression used to be. Is this anti-Semitism? It's complicated, right? It's certainly not anti-Semitism by European standards, okay? But on the other hand, it's, it's generated by the fact too many Jews, you know, it's, 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 we don't like what they're doing. It's, 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 it's certainly, certainly for now. We, we just don't want it, okay? Um, they knew that there are good Jews and bad Jews. 
people I'm talking about, Hardy and Coolidge, the people that time, they knew you got people, let's go to the next one, you got your uh, bad Jews like Trotsky, you got people like Justice Cordozo and Einstein, you know, they're good ones. So they didn't think that people who made these laws in America, the old Jews, by definition, are bad, but since the good ones protect and stick up for the bad ones, all Jews are undesirable at one level or another. That's the answer. Because these guys, if you ask him, he'll try to get, get a break for him. That's what they said. And that's the problem. Okay? Um, now, this was a disaster for the Jewish people in the interwar period. Uh, because um, Europe, as you see over here, was not as good for Jews after the First World War as it had been before. Isn't that interesting? Usually you think things get better later, but not, not in the 20th century. Before the First World War, you had Austria-Hungary and place like that, the Kaiser's Germany, Poland was part of the Russian Empire. It w wasn't great, but it was a lot, lot better than it was after the war. Uh, today, as you know, we're going through all kinds of business with Poland and Lithuania and these kind of countries as far as the Holocaust uh, memories are concerned. They have a point of view. They have a point of view. And they viewed having large Jewish populations back in the 20s and 30s something terrible from, the, from their perspective. And this is why it erupted in such violent fury when Hitler showed up. Okay? So what I'm trying to say is if there had not been any quotas set up in 1924, all the Jews, or most of them, would run away from here and go to America. Why not? Rabbi Hertzberg did. He came to this country in the 1920s, which means, he, I don't know how, but he, he had relatives here, actually. Uh, he had relatives here. Uh, it wasn't so easy to get in a Polish quota into the USA. It could be done you know, in the 1920s. He, he made the right move in that particular regard. But not everybody could do that. So the, the, the numbers were very small. As I say again, if there had not been quotas, how many of Poland's 3.3 million Jews, look at Poland, it's not that big. It's a country of 30 million people in which 10% were Jewish. They said it's too much. And when I say Jewish, a lot of them were Hasidim and all this meaning Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. Okay? Uh, obnoxiously, uh, blatantly Jewish. And if you're Polish, you don't like it. You don't like it, that's all. And, you know, go to another country. Go to Palestine. That's what they used to say. Go to Palestine. Got no problem with that. We'll help you. But we don't like you over here. And uh, the result is that um, the Americans were quite aware that if they don't set up a law, millions and millions of European Jews will flood, flood this country, and that's exactly what they didn't want. To make matters worse, communism really seemed to be Jewish. I know it's funny to us, but Stalin back in those days was seen as a Jewish figurehead, and all the people in the government, or a lot of them, were Jewish. I hate to say this, the people who ran all of his torture chambers, uh, prison camps, um, and all that bad stuff, the secret police, were Jewish. You look at the names, you go to Weinstein, this one, that one, the other, it's, 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 it's terrible. Now, by the way, in Eastern Europe they know this, and that's one of the reasons they don't like Jews. American Jews look at me with a funny look, like, what's he talking about? But it's huge numbers, not all, but almost all, of the people who ran all the bad stuff under the Soviet Union were Jewish. So what does that mean? Communism is a Jewish business, you see? And the Soviet Union, which is trying to expand in the world, is trying to expand Jewish control. If you're Hitler, you took that to the extreme of saying, there's really a Jewish plot organized, and their mom is have to take over the world, and they're going to take in this country and do what Stalin's doing over there, which is starving everybody and shooting everybody and all the rest of it. So these were the feelings that were out there at that time. Um, Soviet power grew. I like this. This is the guy. This is... Uh, this is the guy who got Stalin the A-bomb. He's a grandson of Nodi Yehuda. <laughs> right? Right? So, uh, Professor Lev Landau. 
Uh, what does that mean? See, everything in Russia is the Jews. You know, we the America had the Oppenheimer, their Jew, and the Russia and Stalin had his Jew, Landau. You understand? So it, the, the I'm simply pointing to the fact that in the in the eyes of the public, the broad public out there, whether they'll say it or they won't say it. I mean, some will say it out loud. Some will say it only when they're talking to others. The communism and all that stuff is a Jewish business, right? I don't know exactly how, you know, there's a spectrum of belief. It's a Jewish business, and it's terrible, okay? It's terrible. Then, as if that wasn't bad enough, came the Great Depression, of course, in the early 30s, and Hoover was the president for that time. Herbert Hoover um, totally subscribed to everything I said before. He had his Jewish friends. I'm actually going to speak about one of them in Florida in a couple weeks. Um, Louis Strauss, he said, <laughs> right, who was a very important uh, co-worker with uh, Hoover, um, and Hoover was the type of person Eisenhower was later on. He was very comfortable with American Reformed Jews who were American first. You know what I'm saying? Really patriotic and all the rest of it, anti-Zionist, the whole nine years. He thought you, he he admired their religion. You, you get what I'm saying? But he didn't feel comfortable with this other stuff. And he was ferociously anti-communist, and he was an efficiency uh, expert. And consequently, when the Depression hit, he said that even the small numbers of people who are allowed to come to this country should be blocked off, simply because there aren't enough jobs in this country as it is. You know, uh, it got to, well, I don't know, how many, 10, 12, 15 million people unemployed. It was nuts. 25%, 26% of the uh, workforce, well, a quarter of the workforce was out of a job. Think about that. So we can't bring in new people. Uh, now... What was the result? If you lived in the 20s and the 30s, unless you were, like Rabbi Hertzman, got one of the very few available tickets, you know, certificates, uh, if Jews wanted to run away, uh, there were very few that got into Palestine. That's something we talked about another time, because of the way the Zionist controls worked at that, and they're going to call it productive capacity. It's a very sad story, but they let in very, very few people into Palestine. Uh, so 20,000 Litvaks went to South Africa in the 20s until South Africa put a quota. And about 30,000 went to South America until they put up a block. So that's 50,000 out of millions. It's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. And then, of course, came 1933, and Roosevelt came in, FDR. And uh, Roosevelt, of course, was in for 12 years, as we know, longer than any other president. He served three full terms. He was elected to a fourth, but he died at the beginning of the fourth. Uh, so three full terms. Roosevelt was, uh, like Theodore Roosevelt, unusually well-connected with Jews because he was a New Yorker. He'd been a governor of New York, he was a politician beforehand, and he knew the Jewish community, and he had whole rings of close Jews, more than any other president, more than Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, he had, first of all, his own private Jewish circles. This is uh, Felix Frankfurter, and this is Roseman. People don't know, Roseman wrote all the speeches. All the famous speeches of Roosevelt was written by Judge Roseman. Uh, he made him a judge, too, Samuel Roseman, including the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, Look it up. And, uh, and he, you know, he was there every day in the White House. Plus, he had all these other guys in his staff, and uh, Benjamin V. Cohn and, and so forth. So that's number one. These are people he, he interacted with every day. There's Henry Morgenthau, who was his next-door neighbor in the, uh, in, the, in the suburbs, in Dutchess County. Now, as Roosevelt, as you know, lived in Hyde Park. I assume everybody knows that. And the next farm over was Henry Morgenthau. Okay? So they became friends long before that. And... Uh, Roosevelt appointed Morgenthau to a position when he, when he was governor of New York already, and Kabbalah when he became president, and in 1934, he made him secretary of the treasury, 
who was there for a long time. So this is a president which has a lot of Jews running around him, more than others had before. That's one group. Then secondly, Roosevelt was tight with the rich Jews. Okay? These Bernard Baruch and these types, Strauss, Salzburger, they have nothing to do with Yiddishkeit. They have nothing to do with other Jews. Okay? But they're Jewish. And they're zillionaires by the standards of those days. And uh, they were in the White House all the time, advising on the economics and on this and that and the other. I, I, that's what it was. Uh, this guy, Strauss, uh, was head of Macy. He was the ambassador to France. And Warburg was uh, whatever in the uh, Federal Reserve. Uh, whatever. You, you know, you go down the line. Now, um, then he also was tight with the Jewish establishment. See, these guys are not the Jewish establishment ones before. They're not connected with anything Jewish. But these kind of people are. Rabbi Stephen Wise was the head of the Zionists. Okay? And Brandeis was unofficially the head of the Zionists. So they were part of the Jewish establishment. He could speak to Roosevelt openly. They could only talk on the phone because a Supreme Court judge is supposed to be impartial. You get it? So uh, it's really a violation of judicial ethics. But anyhow, uh, see, he knew always the Zionist position and everything. And then he was also tight, let's go to the next group, with the anti-Zionists, who were big mockers in the country. This is Judge Proskauer. This is Cyrus Sadler from the Jewish Theological Seminary. This is Rabbi Lazaron, if anybody remembers that name from old Baltimore, who was the leader of the Reform Anti-Zionists. And uh, who's this guy again? I forgot already. And, oh, that's uh, Sidney Hillman from the, uh, from the labor unions, who again were, were, were opposed to Zionism. You know, the big guys from the labor. So the point's like this. Roosevelt knew what the Jews think. That's the problem. He knew 10 different opinions, because you know how Jews are. Well, this was bad in the Holocaust, because there was no one voice. You get it? It was, it, was, it was no one voice. Every time Hitler did something, this group said, do something. Others said, don't do something. This one said, shah. This one said, scream. Said so that cancels each other out. Now, what's weird, eerie, as you all know, is uh, Hitler had the same years. Roosevelt and Hitler are both 33 to 45. It's an exact overlap. Okay? Both died in the same month. Exact overlap. Now, when Hitler came to power, of course, then uh, he had the big crisis. But uh, what was Roosevelt's reaction to Hitler? Well, listen, he was totally opposed. A guy who has so many Jewish friends is not going to be sympathetic to Nazism. But on the other hand, he was a wasp. And so he said he can understand where Hitler's coming from. Now, I'm talking about this before they started murdering millions of people. This is in the beginning when they just started a campaign to freeze the Jews out of life. What was Hitler's policy in the 1930s, before the Holocaust? What was the policy in the 1930s? It was to go back to before emancipation. Once upon a time, Jews had to live, so to quote unquote, in a ghetto. And uh, he didn't put them in a ghetto exactly, but he did everything but. So you can't have a job. Can't get a, 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 a what do you call it? Can't be uh, employed by the government, by a university, anything along those lines. Uh, if you have business that's competing with anybody that's not Jewish, you're out. Um, they froze the Jews out little by little, 1933, 34, 35, until it got to the point that you can't sit on a park bench, you know. Little by little, uh, to put them back to where they had been in the Middle Ages, you know, before the modern emancipation. That was the program. So they weren't killing anybody exactly, but on the other hand, it was profoundly anti-Semitic. Roosevelt, um, as I said before, completely opposed this, but he can understand where it's coming from. He said, listen, if uh, in America all the lawyers, all the lawyers were Jewish, then people wouldn't like it. It's a fact. If all the doctors were Jewish, then people wouldn't like it. Get over it. You know, we all talk about the meritocracy, all the rest of it. That's because it's in the Jewish advantage to make that argument. You, 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 you follow the reasoning? So uh, now for tonight's limited talk, which is already too long, 
I'm only going to uh, comment. I can't do justice to this topic, but uh, I just want to speak about the first and last of Roosevelt's terms, even though the Rabbi Hertzberg incident happened in the second. During the first and third terms, Roosevelt had his hands full. The Jewish question had to take second place, third place, and fourth place. And the first term uh, was the Depression, 1933 to 37. He tried to end the Depression. The unemployment was over 25%. Okay? Look at that. Keep going, right? You pass by... No, no, I mean... The sign. Jobless men keep going. We can't take our own. This was the crazy unemployment that existed once upon a time. Let's go to the next one. Well, we'll, we'll go back a second. This is... I'll just cause this over. Just a short clip. In his inauguration speech, he spelled out the problem in the country. He says there's unemployment, the farmers are going bad, the banks are no good, everything's falling apart. You understand? In other words, Hitler is beating up the Jews, but you've got a lot of problems in this country. Can we, can we make this work? Values have shrunk to fantastic levels. Taxes have risen. Our ability to pay has fallen. Government of all kinds is faced by a serious curtailment of income. The means of exchange are frozen in the currents of trade. The women leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no market for their produce, and the savings of many years in thousands of families are gone. More important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence, and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. So, I mean, that's laying it out. Now, um, I only mention this because like this, you tell me, yeah, but Hitler's beating up people in Germany and he's kicking Jews out of professorships. You know, I, I think that's terrible. And, you understand? Now, the problem, of course, is that Roosevelt never solved the Depression. I don't know if you know this or not. I said a clip. Uh, he wasn't able to solve the Depression. As a matter of fact, he, he kind of uh, messed it up a little bit. Um, and therefore, the problem never went away, so they couldn't devote attention to the Jews. Here, take a look at this. Did President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal economic policies pull the country out of the Great Depression? My research clearly suggests that the answer, contrary to popular belief, is no. In fact, the New Deal made matters worse. Let me explain. The centerpiece of Roosevelt's New Deal plan to fix the economy was the National Industrial Recovery Act, or NIRA, which the President announced with great fanfare in June of 1933. FDR believed that he could use the government to artificially raise both prices and wages. It would work like this. Higher prices would raise profits. That makes business happy. And higher wages would raise income. That makes workers happy. More profits for business mean more money to hire new workers. Higher wages for workers means more money to buy consumer goods. A virtuous cycle is set in motion, and the economy improves rapidly. But here's what FDR missed. Artificially raising wages also raises labor costs. And when labor costs go up, business hires fewer workers or no workers at all, especially in a difficult economic environment. Meanwhile, artificially raising prices reduces demand for the obvious reason that people buy less of something when its price goes higher. So why did FDR do this? FDR based his New Deal policy largely on what happened during World War I which had ended only 15 years earlier in 1918. 
During that war, the government established planning boards to set wages and prices, and economic activity increased. If it worked during wartime, FDR reasoned, it should work during peacetime. But Roosevelt confused the increase in economic activity that was actually the result of inflated war demands as being due to government planning. The government, Roosevelt concluded, could much better manage the economy in a time of crisis than private enterprise, which in his worldview only considered its own selfish interests. We can stop it here. If you, if you want to pursue it, you're on. you can do it on your own. I'm, I'm serious about that. My, my only point is like this. So, so people worried about the depression on unemployment in 1933, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, and 39. There was a big revival of the depression of 37 i don't know if you know that 37 38 it's called the depression of 37 38 so in other words the country never got out of the business so nobody wants to hear about immigration that's where i'm going with this now roosevelt was an astute politician as we know and it means he combined dogged pursuit of goals with flexibility in attaining them which is the sign of political genius i'm sorry to say hitler was a genius in this regard the guy made a juice you want to let him go away from here? We'll get him tomorrow. You know, like that. Uh, Roosevelt wanted to get a lot done, and of course he did. But in order for that to happen, he had to avoid antagonizing certain large fixed prejudices. And that's how he passed the New Deal, all those hundreds of acts. Uh, prejudice number one, no League of Nations. No, the country wanted isolationism. They got messed over in World War One. they said. They got nothing to show for it. Just a lot of dead people and things like that. The world's worse than it was before. America should not get involved in the next world war or anything like that. Stay away. Number so he's had to say, I'm against the League of Nations, I'm in favor of isolationism, and this, that, and the other, you know, even though it was lying. Number two, no civil rights laws. You want the South to vote for Social Security, so to speak. You want the South to vote for the Tennessee Valley and all the other progressive legislation and the AA, all the rest of it, do not bring up the civil rights. And therefore, um, you had lynchings and all this kind of stuff going in Roosevelt time, and he would not talk about it. Congress, uh, the, the House of Representatives, repeatedly passed anti-lynching laws in the 1930s, but the Senate filibustered it, and Roosevelt could have stopped it, but he says, I don't want to mess with the Southerners, okay? And number three, no tampering with immigration laws. The public, the business, the labor unions, the churches, the media, the newspapers, the WASPs, the Catholics, they don't want any immigration, and they sure as heck don't want any Jewish immigration. Okay? So he spent his first term fiddling with the Depression uh, with a lot of activity. Look, they passed the uh, Social Security. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, they, he did a lot. Okay? Uh, during his first term, Hitler, as I told you before, didn't do a Holocaust. Any Jew could leave. It was a cold pogrom. It was clear that Roosevelt himself was anti-Nazi. But Roosevelt said, how can the United States government criticize Nazi Germany for being racist? We've got plenty of racism here in America. They said, look, look this, these lynchings were happening. These pictures are from the 1930s, from Roosevelt's time, okay? And go to the next one. It's not a this is In the West Coast, they had all the anti-Asian racism. Read it, okay? So how are you going to say this? Oh, Germany's a terrible country because they're persecuting a minority. Well, America does it, okay? And, and to great popular uh, approval. So, you know, it's a point. Now, anyway, people say like this. You're going to start criticizing Hitler, then I want you to see criticize Stalin. He's doing the same thing, not to the Jews, but to millions of others. You know, in the early 30s, Stalin starved to death. Was it 5 million Ukrainians? I mean, he wouldn't give him any food. Push him shot. They wouldn't give him any food. So he starved to death. It was a cannibalism. Why don't you say he didn't get that? And uh, Roosevelt had a soft spot for uh, left-wing causes. He would, he would never criticize Stalin.
So because of all this, he said, we don't approve, but we're not going to say anything. So nothing happened, and Hitler got bigger and bigger, and Nazism was very dynamic, as you know. Because unfortunately, as we know with retrospect, anti-Semitism is a genius stroke. Uh, we see the revival of it as I speak today, as you know what I'm talking about. And it has awesome power. And, uh, you know, Father Coughlin was a huge uh, business. I don't think people realize what I'm talking about. This is imagine if you had Rush Limbaugh combined with this one, combined with that one, in one big show, and every day was anti-Semitic. Get it? Thank God, in this country, you can be a right-wing guy, you can be a left-wing guy. As far as I'm aware, none of these guys are anti-Semitic. Okay? You know, you can be in favor of Trump, you can be in favor of Obama, that, that, that kind of thing. But mamish, anti-Semitism, the Jews are controlling America, the Jews are in the world, the Jews are terrible, it's a cancer, all the rest. Every day. And he had newspapers, and he had followings, and all the rest of it. So anti-Semitism works. That's, what we, that's the scary part. It works. Uh, in the third term, America already was at war. But I want to point out, the United States went to war against Hitler unwillingly. Do you hear what I said? If you know your history well, which most people don't, this country, the, the broad public out there, was not interested in a war against Germany. Okay? Um, they were certainly not interested in getting rid of the world of Hitlerism. Uh, they wanted to fight Japan. And only because the Japanese bombed us. So if, if Roosevelt would have said, you know, we're only going to war against Japan, uh, fine. Uh, why did he throw Hitler in? No, Hitler declared war on us. <laughs> that, was a, that was a muzzle. You get it? That was a muzzle. No, I'm, I'm serious. It was, it was, it was, he, it, that was a, a crazy move on his part. Get it? If he was smart, he should have like, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, I had nothing to do with it, go fight Japan and get out of my hair for a couple of years. That would have been the smart move. You get it? By the way, Stalin did exactly that. He caused Pearl Harbor, if you know, through the Russian spies, and then he stepped out of it so America and Japan would fight each other and that would help Soviet interests in, in Asia. It's a remarkable story. But Hitler wasn't smart enough to do that. So here you are, FDR, who wanted to get rid fight Germany, but the public didn't want to fight Germany. Don't go by the movies, okay? Especially today. The movies today, for the last 50 years in my lifetime, have always said the soldiers fought against Hitlerism. All their, it's not true. I wish it were true. It's not true. Jews did. Very liberal people did. But not the average farm boys and middle class people from middle America and the middle west and all the rest of it. They weren't interested in all this kind of business. They went along, and mainly went along because Roosevelt was a very good uh, uh, speaker and so forth. But anyway, Hitler declared war on us. But uh, once the war was on, how could Hitler plan? I mean, he declared war on America. So what's the plan, Hitler? You're gonna, are you going to defeat Russia and America and England? I mean, how, how are you going to do that? Okay? Uh, the most Hitler could hope for, of course, was a peace settlement that would leave him in power, which is how European countries have done it forever. Okay? I will call your attention to the fact that the first time we went against Saddam Hussein back in 1990, that's what George Bush did. Beat him, gave him a patch upon him, and then let him alone. He was stupid enough to keep making trouble. Get it? If he would have been smart, he would have said, "Learn, lie low, don't bother any of the countries, just torture your own people, and nobody would bother him. Because, well, listen, in every time and every age, including the year 2018, there are I'm sorry to say, there are dozens of regimes around the world which are torturing their own citizens, and they, since they don't bother anybody else, nobody says anything about them. Except a few liberal groups. You get it? I'll give you an example. Burma, you know, whatever. So no, you, nobody's bothering them. You see, because they say like this, I'm not bothering any other country, I'm only torturing my own people. So uh, I think it, it's, it's such a world. So the most hit, Hitler said like this, why can't I get a deal like that? I'll, I'll give up the territory I conquered. I don't know, I'll do this, that, and the other. Leave me in power. 
But Roosevelt and Churchill made it clear this is part of just who they are, no deal, unconditional surrender, okay? I mean, the American, let's put it this way, the Jews, if you're angry, why didn't people get, get heated up over the Holocaust? How many Jews got heated up over the rape of Nanking? You understand? It's easy to accuse other people of being insensitive, but don't be a hypocrite. Do you today, you, you here today, all of us, do we care about the terrible, I mean, care passionately about the terrible things that happen in different countries around the world? Do you know, I'm not talking about the Arab country, but put that aside because there you have the Arab-Israeli conflict. There's bad stuff happening in a lot of countries around the world, and I'm opposed to all of it, and you're opposed to all of it. You really are. We're opposed to every bit of it, and we would like a world where democratic and uh, kind governments all the rest of it. But that's all. You, that, that's it. You're not doing anything. You get it? You're not going out and, and agitating. There is slavery, human slavery, going on now in the year 2018, okay? And, and I don't see anybody doing anything about it. Just saying, you know what I'm saying? So talk is cheap. Now, uh, wait a second. The most Hitler could hope for, as I said before, was to, uh, was to uh, get uh, a peace. But Roosevelt particularly gave his famous thing. He said, we're going to be like General Grant, U.S., unconditional surrender. Here's a, a, one, one of many clips that Roosevelt did in the war where he has his sleeves rolled up. So he said, I rolled up my sleeves to fight in the war. Look at this. that the jig was up. He could see the shadow of the long arm of justice. But he and his fascist gang will be brought to book and punished for their crimes against humanity. No criminal will be allowed to escape by the expedience of resignation. Our terms to Italy are still the same as our terms to Germany and Japan. Unconditional surrender. So, I mean, what does that mean? That means the end of Hitler, you know. So, uh, Hitler said this. I said, why? Why should America do this? It violates the balance of power. If you wipe out Germany and you help Stalin, he'll take over Europe, which was true. So it doesn't make any sense. The only answer is the Jews, right? They get to Roosevelt. He's basically agent of the Jews. And the Jews would talk and destroy America just to punish Hitler. Get it? And uh, the GIs are dupes. You non-Jewish farm boys from the Midwest and wherever fighting on behalf, it's a Jewish war. You get it? This was the big message coming out of Germany. If Hitler could get that message across, he could create a groundswell of support growing in the American body politic for a good old-fashioned 18th century peace. That's what he wanted. You understand? Work out some uh, deal and restore the balance of power, which made sense. Now, Roosevelt didn't want to play into Hitler's hints by emphasizing the Jews. And he was successful in what I just said. But that meant, of course, he had to sell out the Jews. Okay? As a result, he wouldn't talk about the Holocaust during the war, and he wouldn't even bomb Auschwitz, as you know. This has nothing to do with the Jews, except in a general sense, of course. Right? This was his message all the time. And fortunately, in this context, although unfortunately for the 6 million Jews, fortunately in this context, he's the greatest communicator in the White House that we've ever had. So uh, it was a genius at communication, so Hitler couldn't get his message across. He made speeches all the time, but they didn't get translated and, and, and broadcast in the United States. So you had against Hitler two of the best um, speakers in history, Churchill and Roosevelt. Get it? But there's a price to pay. Okay? Now we're getting into, we go, American Jews at that time, and here we are when Rabbi Herzberg was 40 years old, 50 years old. For the most part, we're afraid to criticize the president. 
There's a reason, though. He was the only world leader who was fighting and destroying Hitler. Get over that. There was no other. And that was the only way to stop Hitler. There was no other. So you have to mobilize the world to go and finish him off with no peace in the middle. Mama should totally wipe him out. And for Roosevelt to keep the public on his side, to keep American parents willing to agree to place their children in harm's way, he had to control the narrative and keep the Jews out of center spot, which was not so easy. Because there were many Jews in Roosevelt's entourage and the public was aware of, like Morgenthau and Frankfurt and people like this. Everybody knew this. They were in the, in the newsreels all the time. There's a famous picture which cost Al Smith the election of 1928. There it is. There's Governor Al Smith of New York, Irish Catholic, and he made the PR mistake of bringing all the cardinals in America for a picture. So if you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, he's like, oh my God, the Pope's taking over. In other words, he had no smart, no, I'm serious, I'm very serious. He had no political sense. No, but, but, but Al Smith was a wonderful person. He wasn't a, a, a prejudiced Catholic. Matter of fact, he was a big protester against the Holocaust. He was a great friend of the Jewish people. One of my favorite stories is in 1920, I think, or 1919, Al Smith went to some ritzy, white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant golf club in uh, Long Island somewhere with a guy he had appointed to the New York Supreme Court Judge, Irving Rosenberg. And he said, I guess, we're here to play. And the guy said, I guess, you can play, but he can't play. Because <laughs> he told me at that time. So he said, wait a minute, this is, this is Judge Rosenberg. He says, you can play, you can't play. He said, I just made this one. He's on the New York Supreme Court, whatever they call it. He said, you can play. He said, let me talk to the manager. They brought the manager out there. And he said, this guy's a, a, a guest of mine, all the rest of it. It's, again, it's a different America. And he said, look here, you Mick. You're lucky we let you in here. So don't you, don't you give me any lip. So Al Smith said, I guess, let's rephrase this. Either we're going to play today around the golf, or I can guarantee you, in 30 days, this is the newest state park, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Where Bunny said, I guess, enjoy your, enjoy your day, okay? So wait a minute. So this guy was not what you think from this picture, but it's a bad picture, okay? It's a bad picture. And when he ran for president, the Republicans put it all over the paper. I'm only mentioning this because Roosevelt didn't want to be seen with 400 rabbis in 1943. People don't, people don't get that. You think, well, that's handing Hitler on the platter because then they drop leaflets all over the GIs that this is who you're fighting for. You understand? This is, a re this is the famous march. Okay? They took a lot of it off. It was a publicity thing. That was the reason. Yeah. There's a, we saw Rosenberg and Rabbi Levin's also thing. Blessed Silver. Consider and recognize this momentous hour of history and the responsibility which the divine presence has laid upon him that he may save the remnant of the people of the book, the people of Israel. And we pray that the Lord may aid us to gain complete and speedy victory on all fronts against our enemies, and that we may be blessed with everlasting peace. And we shall dedicate our most solemn prayer on this coming day of atonement, for the triumph of our beloved country, the United States of America. Amen. That's Rabbi Gold, Wolf Gold, you know, Macon Gold. Now, they should have gotten Rosenblatt from Bethlehem. That was a mistake. But anyway, 
Rabbi Hertzberg is one of those 400 rabbis. Okay? But what's the, per- what's the point? You understand what I'm saying? That if, they're think- if you're thinking like FDR, he said, that's the last thing I need. You get it? That's the last thing I need. Um, by the way, it's a publicity stunt, which got beyond with the original publicity. It was from Peter Bergson's committee, you know, from the Irgun, and it was a, it was a, it was a PR stunt. But it w- what, 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 the funny thing is like this. What originally began as a moment of kitsch turned into a moment of pathos. Because when the Ford and Rabbanim actually got together, and you saw that they're really davening for six million people getting killed, it wasn't it wasn't a, a PR stunt anymore. Because it got way out of the, what the original plan uh, plan was. But uh, like I said before, well, what, what influence does that have on, on, on the course of events? Peter Bergson, who organized this and similar moves, believed in the American Yeter Tov. Okay. Now tonight I'm, I'm, I'm late as it is. I don't have the time to develop this theme. He believed in the American Yetzir Tov. He wanted to try it, and it's a very interesting story. He got Herbert Hoover on his side. He got William Randolph Hearst on his side. He got people you wouldn't, wouldn't believe decide to come out that America should help the six million. As you, you, you just won't believe it. But uh, uh, Will Rogers Jr. is a whole, whole a, a galaxy. Frieda Kirchway. Uh, most American Jews did not believe it. They feared stirring up the American Yetzir Hara. That's what it was. And in 1943, you can definitely hear that point of view. Okay, now I come to my peroration, as it were. That meant acquiescing in the death of six million without making a try. To people like Rabbi Hertzberg, this was a cowardice of unbelievable proportions. To him, a basic part in being a Yid is taking risks to help save the lives of other Jews. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. That's up to Rabbi Shalom. If all of Klai Yisrael, including American Jewry, gets killed, that's God's affair. But we have to do our maximum hishtadlis, and the rest is up to him. But in the 1940s, American Jewry was post-religious, certainly in that sense of religious. The kind of palpable amuna in which you really feel the immediate presence of God, the kind of amuna that challenges, inspires you to act heroically to help other Jews. But heroism means risk. And in the 1930s and 40s, American Jewry was risk-averse. They chose the safe road, which is to let Roosevelt finish off Hitler in the most destructive war in history. FDR was amazing as a war leader, and he did succeed, and it's actually quite a remarkable story. But that meant sacrificing the six million. In the end, this meant that American Jewry was willing to sacrifice European Jewry to save American Jewry. Nobody said those words, of course, but that's what happened. During the lifetime of the American Jewish leaders who were around that time, uh, nobody criticized it. Only when everybody died 20 years later, then uh, began a revision. Uh, only somebody like Rabbi Hertzberg, who was in Europe even when he was physically in America, only people like him were saturated with the real Hasidus, not the external type, the real Hasidus, of a living faith that demanded risk-taking to help other Jews would not agree in this kind of policy. It could not help but make him disgusted with American Jewry, with the Americanized Jew, both native-born, and especially the Greeners, who should have known better, who had loved ones back in the old country, they're the ones who fired him from the show. <laughs> okay? They're European Jews, but they're afraid to mess with what they have over here. Um, and when he criticized Roosevelt, which is a story I never even got to, he was really criticizing American Jewry, American Jews, including Jews in a city called Baltimore, Maryland. They didn't want to hear that, so they fired him. And that's how this show came to be. I've scratched the surface, but that's enough for one talk. But I leave you with the question that he would ask if he were here, and that is, what would you have done? And that's not so push it.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.